My guest on this episode is a very well-respected and accomplished Welsh historian. Dr Ellen Jones has advised the Welsh Government on history, heritage and educational matters for many years. In lockdown, she wrote a comprehensive Welsh history book suitable for young teenagers, covering 5,000 years of Welsh history up to today. Her book, History Grounded, Hanes and Atir, will be distributed to schools as part of the changes to the history curriculum. Ellen recently provided advice to the Welsh Government, which resulted in the announcement that the UK Government's commissioned book about the history of the Queen to mark the monarch's jubilee would not automatically be distributed to Welsh schools. Ellen lives in Estradmynach, where she grew up. Croeso Ellen Diolch, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. That decision by the Welsh Government not to distribute the Jubilee book was welcomed by many of us, but was contentious to others. Can you expand on their reasoning for this decision? Well, I wouldn't like to expand on anybody's reasoning except my own, I'll be honest with you, Leanne. I think there was a general feeling that maybe, I don't know, because I haven't seen anything about the debate myself, was just that it wasn't fair for schools in Wales to have to apply for the book, because schools can ask to have the book, not a problem, but they wasn't being delivered automatically to them. And I guess they just thought it was inappropriate because I think when I was, when the Queen was crowned in 1953, I got a coronation mug. Uh, I think a mug would be more appropriate than this book, which I thought was deeply flawed in many ways and inappropriate for schools in Wales because it didn't give any understanding or make any reference to the, gosh, the early history of British Isles which shows that there were people here before the Romans came and there were people here before the Anglo-Saxons came because this book focuses on the conquerors of the British Isles, not the indigenous people. And if you don't do that, then you can't explain the existence of the Celtic, of the, as we call them, Celtic languages, the Scots Gaelic, the Irish Gaelic, uh, Welsh, Cornish, Manx, and so on. You can't explain it because it's just there. And it doesn't give a proper understanding of the rich diversity of the British Isles over millennia. That was my basic, basic concern about it. And I didn't think because of this that it supported the Welsh government's declared aims of promoting the use of the Welsh language. It didn't give the Welsh language a context. The book referred to there being, I think it was 10 and sometimes in some versions it was 14 community languages spoken in Britain. I'm sure there are many, many more languages than that. My cousins in Cardiff go to a school Tregana. I forget exactly how many languages can be spoken on the yard in Tregana, but it's a heck of a lot more than 14. So I, I thought it was muddled. It was uh, basically flawed because it didn't make no reference to the indigenous populations of Britain. So I didn't think it was appropriate for schools in Wales. There were other issues as well that made me think it was inappropriate. As a history book generally, I have to say, I it was a very, very poor history. So um, there we go. That's why I turned it down. I can't explain why people, if they feel strongly about it, do, because I, I, nobody's ever told me they didn't. I mean, I, I haven't seen any comments that were contentious, so I stay off social media. I, I've seen a few reviews, which have on the whole been positive. And I, so I don't know really what other people thought about it or why they thought what they thought about it. So I can't tell. There were some attacks on the Welsh government decision from a muscular unionist perspective, I suppose we could say, but I don't think they were of any substance, really. 
I would accept that the monarchy has quite a strong fan base in Wales, but there are also a considerable number of us who have a problem politically with the hereditary principle. What can you tell us about Republican sentiment or opposition to the monarchy in Wales over time? Where do you want me to start, Tanerity? Where do you want me to start? There's been a tension ever since the beginnings of radical thought in Britain in the 18th century and the 17th century. There were very strong anti-monarchical sentiments in the 17th century, like they cut the king's head off, which is pretty definitely anti-monarchical. And the diggers and the levelers argued for a much fairer society, you know, all those centuries ago. Then you get the 18th century, you get the French Rev, you get the growth of uh, Republican thought, you get a Welshman, uh, Richard Price, Vindicating the Rights of Man. You get Mary Wollstonecraft then writing her book, Vindication of the Rights of Women. You get that strand of thinking going all through the 18th century. And it was supported to a very large extent by the fact that the established church of which the Anglican Church, of which the Queen, Queen Victoria, where the monarch is head, that church is the established church, was established church in Wales. And you had to pay tithes to it, you had to tax by the church. If you were a nonconformist, as more and more people were in Wales in the 19th century, you felt that the tithe was wrong. But nevertheless, while there was this anti-monarchical, anti-establishment, anti-established church movement, there was a great deal of sense of loyalty to God's anointed king or queen. And the injunctions in the New Testament to be respectful, to be loyal to those who take authority over you, to accept God's will and making the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. He made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. The idea that if you challenge that, you challenged divinely appointed authority. That ran side by side with these ideas that every man was equal. Every woman eventually became equal as well. But that took a lot longer. Uh, so you get that strand of Republican and radical thought running through Welsh history, as it does through the history of Western Europe, and certainly of the United States of America, where they were also influenced by the ideas of the 18th century Enlightenment, and the idea of, again, the removal of the monarch, appointed by God or not, that if he wasn't doing his job properly, you went back to that medieval idea of there being a contract between the king and his people. And if the king didn't keep his contract, the people could depose him. Hence the Welsh saying, the people are mightier than the Lord. So, meaning the secular, not the uh, holy God Almighty. So you have this sense of there being a contract that a king or the monarch should behave properly. That's a very, very old one. And I could take you back then to sacred monarchy if you wanted, Luan, but you may not have enough time to do that. I'd love to hear a bit about it. <laughs> well, I certainly. One of my MAs I did on the heroic principle in Welsh court poetry, with particular reference to it. I won't go on with the rest of it. But what it did was to look at why the poets praised the princes in the Middle Ages. And my thesis was that this was a very ancient concept of the sacred king whose health, well-being reflected that of the nation. The monarch could be married to his people, sometimes in ceremonies, which I think as Gerald of Wales describes very vividly, as in happening in Ireland, where the king married his, his country, in the, and the country was in the shape of a horse. However, we won't go into that now. But there was a sense that the king re represented his people, and his health, his safety, his physical perfection was really important as reflecting that of the nation. And then he showed his princely qualities by generosity, giving gifts to his followers and his strength and success in battle. So you get that sense that there is a divinity that shapes the kings and you just don't mess around with what God has appointed 
anointed as the queen has been anointed, a priest of the Order of Melchizedek goes right back to the origins of the idea that a king represents God on earth to his people. And you don't mess around with the divine. So that was part of, there's a long, I could go on and on about this, but you may want to go on. But it is fascinating because I think that explains a lot of the almost visceral sense. We have to, we have to celebrate the monarchy. We have to do this. The Queen represents, I think, to many people in Britain, what is best in Britain. And as we respect old age, I hope we respect old age. The older I get, the more I want that to happen. But it is, I think, it's really important that we accept that there is a feeling of that the monarchy, qua monarchy, is precious and special. And it is, because the whole concepts around it are so deeply rooted in Western European thinking. And you find it in other cultures as well, that sense of the monarch being semi-divine, and that his authority, or indeed sometimes her authority, is that of God himself. That leads me on to my next question quite nicely, really, because I remember being struck when reading a book called Towards Freedom, written by early Plaid Cymru economists and researchers DJ Davis and Noel French in the 1950s. Now, they started out as staunch anti-monarchists, but they concluded after the coronation of the Queen in the early 1950s, that Wales must have a king because the overwhelming public support at that time was so strong. They also wanted to decouple Republican sentiment from the struggle for independence, which I agree makes sense. Of course, they wanted a Welsh monarchy, not the one we currently have. Opinion seems to have changed a lot since the 1950s. In a YouGov poll carried out in 2021, some 40% of young people aged 18 to 24 said they'd prefer an elected head of state. How is support for the monarchy changing in Wales? And how does support for the monarchy, which is a British institution, fit with Welsh identity? You've partly started to explain why Politically, it makes sense for so many working class people to support an institution that perpetuates vast wealth inequalities. That seems to be something that doesn't make sense to many people. Can you explore that a bit further and explain why? Well, I think we're not doing something that's particular to Wales. I think we have to look again in the whole British concept. I think we've seen since the 1950s when everybody was buoyed up with the sense that they had won the war. The monarchy was perceived as being the symbol of British resistance. The monarchy, Churchill is the prime minister, the symbol of British resistance. And they were very proud of that. There was a festival of Britain in 1951 to celebrate Britain. And of course, the monarch is the figurehead represents the nation. So that was very important. And the changes that have happened since the 1950s, I think, have to do with a general rebellion against authority and the norm and established traditions and organizations, which began probably in the 1960s and has continued throughout the present century, the last century and the present century, that we are increasingly inclined to criticize and to be criticise vocally and be willing to stand up and criticise authority, both elected and hereditary. And the people who say to me that all politicians are the same, which I don't agree with, um, they're all in it for themselves, don't agree with that either, but they do feel that. And that would never have been said when I was growing up in Eston Manach, you know, oh, all right, you know, there's a council, but now those councillors, they're no good from a local level. So I, I understand that it's very hard now to maintain authority in the classroom, 
I never found a problem myself, but there we go. I taught in a different era. I feel very strongly as the daughter of a, a union representative who was blacklisted for his activities that you should challenge authority. I think authority should always be accountable and to be removed if it's not doing its job properly. That ancient idea of there being a contract between the monarch and his people is really an important one. If you are in public office, you are accountable to your electorate. I think that's very clear. And where people are not accountable, and where they behave badly, as in some instances, uh, the established church and other churches as well have behaved badly towards the young people in their care, they are rightly being criticised, which again would have been unthinkable 30, 40 years ago. And that change towards elected and unelected authority has been a significant factor, I think, in the changes towards the monarchy. There is also this, the question of religion. And the Queen has identified herself very strongly with religion. She was, as I say, anointed at her coronation as a priest after the Order of Melchizedek, the holy monarch. She feels that duty, that responsibility very strongly. It's obvious she has carried out that her responsibility to the best of her ability for 70 years. She, uh, the people may not agree with the way she perceives it, but that those are her principles. She's lived them. She's acted on them. She deserves to be admired for that. And I think that their feeling is that that is very closely bound up with the established church, which is the head. As people have left the church in droves, all churches, or almost all churches, face extinction before the middle of the century, that somebody who is so closely identified with that one particular branch of the church is also that commitment is really, really hard to dis disassociate. So you get a two-pronged attack, as it were, on the monarchy. You get, I don't think, an active republicanism in Wales. What you do get is an interest. People are just not interested anymore in the, or many people, because some people still are. They don't see any reflected glory for them for having been in the presence of royalty. I guess some people still do. Do you think the ceremony, the pageant, is that something as human beings we are naturally drawn to? Well, some people are. <laughs> I just think it's a lot of nonsense right <laughs> Whatever the ceremonies are. I mean, I belong to the gods, Seth. I've got the forms to apply for the aesthetical ceremonies, but I'd be dressing up in some mad robes and walking around, <laughs> probably wearing a bikini, God forbid, underneath it, because it's just so hot in the, in the, in the barbet. So, you know, I think that's a lot of nonsense <laughs> We do love it. It is very colourful. So, yeah, there's a thing about pageantry, you know, that some people really, really enjoy. I just think people look so funny. You know, when he, I see Black Rod going to open Parliament, I think, so how is he? Is he wearing tights or is he wearing stockings and suspenders? I just think it's crazy. Yeah, I guess people do enjoy it. You know, I'm willing to play along with it on some occasions. Yeah. And I remember my degree ceremonies. And I think, oh, what on earth was that about? For one degree ceremony in Oxford, I'd kneel in front of the vice chancellor or something and be tapped on my head with a New Testament. Uh, what was that all about? I don't know. I know. But there we go. Yeah, it's colourful. There'll be Jubilee Street parties. People like a party. People like something to celebrate. And some people like dressing up and walking around looking very strange. In your new book, you outline the importance of understanding the history of underrepresented groups, as well as Wales's role in the history of slavery and empire. There are clear links between slavery, empire and the monarchy, as we've seen with recent developments in Caribbean countries, Canada and Australia as well. What can we learn about those links for today and for Wales? And is it possible for the monarchy to properly make amends? 
Wow, that's a big, big question. I think it's not just the monarchy that was involved in slavery. The nonconformist chapels were involved as well. The early denominations in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, they had their money in the sugar plantations of the West Indies. Uh, Yolo Morgano, who called himself the Bartholomew, the poet of freedom, he had a shop in Cowbridge where he said the sugar sold in this shop is not tainted with human blood. In other words, wasn't slave brought sugar. He had an income from the plantations owned by his brothers where slaves were employed. It's a very complex, deep-rooted issue. And I think it's, it wouldn't be appropriate to say that the monarchy alone was involved with that. Lloyds of London was involved with that. Those early banks, those early institutions, they all made their money from the slave trade. Britain was not the first to abolish the slave trade. Republican France did that, brought it back in again afterwards, but they were ahead of us. And I think it is hugely, hugely difficult to go back and find the roots of this. And I don't think it's ever any good to look for the blame and to look for ways to criminalize the past because the values and the ideas of the past were so different from ours. They didn't hold inquests on minors until the 1840s because it was taken for granted that it was a dangerous job. But if you got killed being a minor, that was it. It was tough luck. So the past is a very, very foreign country. But what I do think we can do today, and I try and do it in my book, is to accept, to acknowledge errors of the past according to the lights of the present, to accept that we are probably doing things that subsequent generations will think are appalling abuses of human rights, for sure, to acknowledge the past, to accept that we are making mistakes now. But if we I think, respect everybody, whatever the color of their skin, the language they speak, the disabilities or abilities they may have. If we respect every person as a person, I think we will be doing the most positive thing we can to put that right. And of course, it does involve meaning that you think of everybody as being born equal. And the problem that the monarchy comes up against is that, that the whole essential basis of the monarchy is you're not born equal. You're born into privilege. You're born into what I think is the most awful slavery because you are enslaved to your position. The queen was not given, well, what do you want to do then, love? Be a queen or do something useful. And she was just told that she was, well, she was bred to think that that was it, as they all have been. And you see examples in Prince Harry at the moment, uh, Princess Margaret in the past, Edward VIII in the past, where individuals have found the restrictions of their gilded slavery too much for them to bear, and they have opted out. The sad thing is, because of the way they've been brought up within this idea of inherited privilege and inherited position, they find it very difficult to work in the hard, cold world where everybody is equal, or at least more equal than they are within the walls of their palaces. And it's, I think it's a cruel institution, I have to say. I admire the Queen because she's made the best of it, because she believes in what she's doing and dedicated herself to her role. But I just think it's so unfair on any child to force them into anything, whether it is being, you know, you'll be a doctor because your father was a doctor and you just haven't got that gift for being a doctor. I just think that is just not fair. It's not equal. You're not being treated equally. And I believe that everybody born into this world is equal. Wherever they're born, whatever their situation and condition, they are my equal and I am theirs, of course. I totally agree with you there. On that theme then, can you imagine a different Wales in the future, a Wales without an unelected monarch as head of state? Well, I can imagine one career. I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. But then my father, bless him, never thought he'd see devolution in his lifetime. 
And when the vote came in from Kamalan, he rang me up at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I was so grateful. I was in a conference in Hungary at the time. And when I went downstairs to breakfast that day, after the, you know, we'd all been watching on CNN, I was amazed at the fact. When I walked into the dining room, my colleagues from all over Europe applauded me because they said we had made our first step towards freedom. And they also said, in our countries, we have fought and died for freedom. But in Wales, you love your chains. So I don't think that I will see a Wales which is, hasn't got some sort of form in the British Isles. I think geography makes it very difficult for us to gain total independence. On the other hand, we do know of very successful small nations Finland being a striking example, and other of the Baltic republics, where they seem to manage their society, their education system, certainly, with a great deal more fairness and success than we do in Wales and indeed in Britain and in some countries in Western Europe. So I think there are ways in which we could become more independent. And I must say, it's always tricky when you have an elected head of state, because you might end up with a, you know, a really wonderful person like Mary Robinson, or, or forgive me for saying this, our present first minister, but you might also end up with Donald Trump. And that is the, the difficulty. And you see Orban in Hungary leading his people down the same path of populism. So it's always chancing. But I think you have accountability, and you have a willingness to be transparent, and to accept mistakes and accept wrongdoing, which the government in Westminster seem singularly unwilling to do, then you do get a better system and a fairer system. But I do think we have to accept our limitations. To go back to that Jubilee book, I was very worried that there was a strong flavour of English exceptionalism in that book, where things like oh, the Second World War, the Tudor period, were being exemplified as wonderful successes. It's a very London-centric book. It's a very English-centric book. And I was worried by that celebration of English exceptionalism. I think it's wrong for any group of people to think of themselves as exceptional. I do feel very strongly that we are accountable for what we do. Where we do well, we are to be praised. Where we do badly, and we all do badly sometimes, we are to be criticised. Absolutely. And may we soon break those chains so we do see that freedom in your lifetime. Ellen Jones, Diolch and Vauriaun. Well, you may see it, Leanwech, but I don't think I will. I mean, it may happen, but it'll be a gradual process. And that is a healthy way to be, to be a gradual process. If it works, we take a step further. If it doesn't work, we can stay there. Diolch, Ellen, for your insights. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Okay, Gariad, no problem, Google. Please, sir, Mao. Please, sir, Mao. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.